Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliet Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. I'm very excited today to have Henry C. Clark on The Great Antidote podcast. Today is March 9th, 2022, and today we're going to be talking about the intellectual influences behind the year 1776. Henry Clark is the program director of the Political Economy Project at Dartmouth College, and he's written two books and numerous articles, mainly on the French and Scottish Enlightenments, which is so fascinating. Welcome to The Great Antidote. Thank you for having me. So before we jump in, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Well, I always preface that question, Juliet, by noting that uh, people of your generation are in many, many ways better human beings than my generation was. I won't go into the details, but there are just so many things I am in awe of when I look at my students and my recent students. Um, on the other hand, uh, every generation is uh, needs to learn certain things, and uh, every generation takes time to learn certain things. And I would say the biggest thing that I've noticed, and it's really just been in the last five years or so, that the younger generation today does not know enough about is the actual record of socialism as a governing practice, a governing philosophy from 1917 to 1991 and beyond. Survey after survey shows that young people uh, greatly underestimate the actual costs of socialism, revolutionary socialism in particular. I would argue that revolutionary socialism is the only kind of real socialism, by the way. And also that the uh, when, in my own experience, when, when young people do know something about some of the rulers over socialist societies, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, and others, they tend to regard the consequences of their rule in personal terms, as the result of the fact that this or that country unfortunately ended up with a real rotter uh, as a ruler, rather than to see these rulers as themselves the products of the incentives and constraints built into the kind of system that was created. So, this uh, gap, I would say, in the knowledge base of this generation of young people makes a lot of important conversations more difficult. And I would say that's one of the biggest, if not the biggest thing that, uh, that, I, that I notice uh, in, uh, in, in the current younger generation. Now, let me hasten to add, however, a couple of things. First of all, it's much more difficult to... Um, to teach the 
systemic consequences of socialism than it is, for instance, to teach people to be on their guard against a return of another of the horrors of the 20th century, uh, Hitler's Nazism or fascism, which, in my experience, young people are very, very attuned to. And that's be- precisely because the the kinds of consequences in socialist governance are systemic in nature. They tend not to be so personal in nature. And so it's, uh, it's, it's more difficult to, to get that message across. That's one sort of exculpation that I would offer to our general uh, education system, by which I mean not just the school system, but also Hollywood films, TV, popular culture of various kinds. And I would also say something else, that uh, even if um, even if this blind spot were not present, that does not mean, in my view, that the current generation of young people would magically uh, transform their views on current events. Uh, David Hume, another of your 18th century figures, who actually died in 1776, believed that the human disposition to embrace communal sharing, communal property even, was so strong that the only real way for people to learn that a system based on private property leads to better results is through the hard uh, school of experience. So, um, so, so, so. With, but with that caveat, nonetheless, uh, that's the answer that I would give to your uh, very interesting opening question. <laughs> Thank you so much. That is a great lead-in. <laughs> so let's begin. Being Americans, 1776 immediately reminds us, at least reminds me, of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And I think that seems to be a big turning point, obviously. Um, and it's really emphasized in schools and just everywhere in American culture. And while it's interesting to explore the intellectual influence behind the ideas expressed in that declaration, that wasn't the only thing that was happening at the time. In fact, we're recording this podcast on the 246th anniversary of Adam Smith's An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, which is mind-blowing. That's such a short period of time for someone who seems to have lived generations and generations ago, but at the same time, it's so it's so close because humans haven't been around for that long. I don't know. It's fascinating. But it's also the year when the minister of of King uh, Louis XVI, this guy, and Robert Jacques de Turgot, I can say it in French, kind of, um, stood up to the powerful trade guilds, introducing free trade and competition, and then replacing the corvée system of compulsory labor with a tax on property owners in France. For that, and his later writings, he's often referred to as the French Adam Smith. Um, the bottom line is that this was a very vibrant year. There were lots of things going on. And I'm sure you can tell me all the things that I forgot. 
But is it a coincidence that so much happened during that period of time? Or were all the intellectual political revolutions, were they happening at that time specifically together for a reason? That's a really interesting question, and I don't think there's any easy or simple answer to it. One thing that I can certainly say is that one reason why Adam Smith's book was published in 1776 is because he delayed publication trying to get a read on how things were going to turn out in the American colonies. He was mostly ready with the manuscript several years before, but he was keenly interested in what was happening in uh, the American colonies, of course, uh, starting especially around 1770 or so. The father of his 2T, Townsend, was a minister in the English government who consulted him about uh, tax policy and other issues having to do with the Americans. So it's more or less pure coincidence, I would say, that Smith's own book came out in the same year that the uh, Declaration of Independence was, um, was signed. In fact, uh, uh, Smith might uh, perhaps have waited even longer. It was Hume who wrote him a letter and, at one point and said, hey, if you, if you wait until the fog has cleared uh, in the American colonies, you might be waiting for a very long time. You, you've got to get that manuscript in. And, uh, and, so, and so he did. But, uh, but stepping back a little bit more broadly, I would say uh, this. I would say that there was, in the generation before 1776, a sea change in thinking that did cross both the English Channel and the Atlantic Ocean. It affected France, it affected England, and it affected uh, the American colonies. And it, 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 getting a handle on it has occupied historians for a long time. I would say one way of thinking about it is to think of virtually all of it as a kind of outgrowth of the uh, the the. The, the systematically new approach to governance, history, law, and politics that you got in Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws. That work came out in 1748, and it uh, immediately attracted the attention of the censors. It was, it was ultimately placed on the, uh, on the papal uh, index. Uh, but everybody uh, who cared about public affairs read that book. And the influence from that book went in a variety of different directions. And one direction it went into is in the Scottish Enlightenment, in fact. Smith was just a, a very young instructor in 1750. And at that time, he was already clearly engaging some of the ideas that he had learned in Montesquieu's work. Turgot, whom you also mentioned, was even younger. In fact, he was four years younger than Smith. 
And he wrote some very important essays while he was at the Sorbonne in 1750, 1751, at almost exactly the same time. There was a whole um, a sea change in the level of public discussion about political economy. In fact, scholarship has shown that the number of volumes published on the themes of political economy, however we may define them, exploded almost immediately after about 1750 or so. And certainly by the time that Smith brought out his book, The Wealth of Nations in 1776, political economy had arrived as a a real focus of people's attention. Another uh, uh, element of this sea change was the emergence of really the first authentic school of political economy that the world has ever known, namely the physiocrats, so described, so christened. And that school began to uh, emerge and crystallize around 1758 or so. Certainly in 1760-61, it was already a going concern. In the Encyclopédie, edited by D'Alembert and and uh, and Diderot, there were important articles in the early uh, the early volumes on the new political economy thinking. And by the time that Smith came to France in 1764 as the tutor of the Duke of Buccleuch, the physiocratic school was up and running. It was a major force that had already had a major impact on French royal legislation. And he got to know most of the leading figures in that school during his nearly two-year visit in uh, France. He became friends with both Turgot and Necker, or Necker as we call him on this uh, side of the pond. Uh, who were great rivals uh, in, uh, in in France between a broadly sort of protectionist Colbertiste uh, Necker on the one hand, and as you indicated, the uh, the more free trade uh, oriented Turgot on the other hand. He was friends with both of them. Uh, so uh, so so yes, things were happening. And the other interesting thing about this is that the. That this movement, this intellectual movement, uh, uh, took shape in a number of different ways. Certainly, it was a publishing venture, among other things. It was also something that was discussed in the salons of Paris. And one of the things that that did is it made political economy, uh, especially as developed by the physiocrats, into an international movement because people from outside of the countries that I've mentioned, Scotland, England, France, would come to Paris. Paris was the capital of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, whether they be Russians, Austrians, Swiss, uh, 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 Prussians, uh, dignitaries of one kind or another, uh, uh, Jean de Lettre, uh, literary figures. And so they attended the salons. And and so political economy, for really the first time ever, to my knowledge, became a topic of 
I won't say popular conversation exactly, but certainly um, a generally educated conversation. And so when Smith's book came out in 1776, it was greeted not in the way that it might be greeted today by a narrow band of academic specialists. It was greeted by people who had very wide and eclectic uh, interests, uh, including the wide interests in Montesquieu's work, uh, the, The Spirit of the Laws. In fact, Smith's Wealth of Nations was looked upon, uh, among other things, as as a continuation of Montesquieu's attempt to devise an entire science of the legislator, a a, a science almost of of history, law, and politics, of comparative history, law, and politics. So it's that. uh, What's exciting to me about that, that period is precisely this combination of on the one hand, you have the development of a new discipline, a new intellectual science. But on the other hand, it is absolutely integral to the broader cultural drift and tendencies of the age. So that reminds me a lot of something that Deirdre McCloskey argues, which is that what the period that we call the Industrial Revolution from 1760 to 1840 about was caused by the way that people thought and talked about commerce and innovation. And you can see that with France being this hub of anyone with intellectual interest being interested and talking about these things, almost as though it's a popular culture. And do you think that, or what role do you think that the way that it was talked about not only the fact that people were interested, but the way the ideas were presented, particularly by pre-Smith writings. Um, how do you see evidence of the change that McCloskey argues about? Well, there are a few people in the world that have more admiration for Deidre McCloskey than I do, and I certainly think that she's right that there was a different way of thinking and talking about political economy, about commerce, about industry, about getting on and getting ahead and and having a go, as she likes to put it sometimes. I think that all that is uh, is true. I think that the, the actual story of the great divergence, if you will, that is to say, or the rise of the West, if you will. The industri- you called it the Industrial Revolution. That's what historians very often call it. I think that real story is con- considerably more complicated uh, than that. I, I think a lot of the uh, elements go back to, uh, the, a lot of the elements of a real explanation go back to the Middle Ages. And by the way, um, there was a debate in the 18th century that is echoed in our own time between those who think that the Industrial Revolution was a result of things that happened suddenly and recently, that is, in that very period you mentioned, 1760 to 1830, and those who believe that the real origins of modernity and the real origins of the great breakout from the Malthusian trap are to be found 
centuries before, even as far back as the Middle Ages. And Adam Smith was a part of that debate. And if I may say so, uh, I see Adam Smith as mainly a medievalist on that great debate in the sense that he did not seem to think that the great explosion in foreign trade that emerged after 1492, after the opening up of the Atlantic by Columbus's voyages and the conquests of the Spanish and Portuguese, was the magic bullet that made the difference between a poor Europe and a rich Europe. In fact, he was at pains throughout the Wealth of Nations, and particularly in Book Four, uh, which was his critique of the of the what he called the two major systems of political economy, uh, to offer an entirely different account of where the prosperity of the modern world, which he thought he was already living in, by the way, uh, had come from. Uh, his view, as I read it, is that there were at least two major things that happened all the way back in the 12th and 13th century that did as much to explain modern prosperity as he was living through it as anything that happened after 1492. And those two things were, first of all, the emergence of towns, cities, communes, they were often called in continental Europe. And secondly, uh, changes in property law, landed uh, property law. So let me just say a word about each. So the uh, the flowering of different towns and cities, and very often they were walled cities when they were first built. And of course, you've probably been to Europe and you've seen some of them in Car Carcassonne, for example, is a, a perfect example of a, a kind of a Violet-le-Duc, uh, uh, a Violet-le-Duc uh, restored, a kind of a Disneyland uh, effect of the, the, uh, the, the walled city of the Middle Ages. But those towns, um, what they did was, with the help of the princes, the monarchs, the uh, empire even, um, they were able to cow the uh, feudal barons uh, into accepting at least some modicum of law and order. Uh, order and good government is the phrase that Adam Smith used over and over again. And he thought that it was absolutely crucial to the later story of economic development. He also believed, by the way, that law and order or order and good government were not easy, that they were in fact rare. This was in book three where he discussed how throughout most of human history in most parts of the world, east and west, north and south, uh, people felt so insecure and they felt uh, they were living in such disorderly environments that the practice of buried treasure was very, very widespread. You cannot have economic growth and development if people are burying their assets in the ground. You have to, people have to have enough faith and trust in the basic orderliness of their environment uh, to, to want to uh, invest uh, their capital. 
in the future. So that was one that was a uh, that was an achievement not of the 17th and 18th century but of the 12th and 13th century. Max Weber 100 years later would go on to argue that that those cities those towns were really quite unique to Europe. You don't find cities with such agency and with such efficacy uh, in other parts uh, of the world. And then the second a thing that he also traced to the Middle Ages was um, security of landed property. He had lots of harsh things to say for sure about the feudal uh, tenure system of the Middle Ages. Lots of harsh things to say about entail and primogeniture and so forth. But he also thought that if England was a more prosperous place in his time than other European countries were, it had much more to do with the fact that the English yeoman farmer, just an ordinary, untitled farmer, had an opportunity not in the 16th, 17th, or 18th century, but already in the 13th and 14th century, through a 99-year lease system and other devices, to actually invest in the cultivation uh, of, uh, of, of private, private property. He thought that this, and he kept coming back to this over and over again. In fact, when he discussed the American colonies, it was more often than not to contrast them favorably with European metropolitan governments precisely on the score that the American colonists had security of landed property, they had incentives in place to cultivate their land, and that's how you get economic growth. So uh, so at least Adam Smith, at least the way I read Adam Smith, I did not put an enormous amount of emphasis upon um, changes in talk, changes in rhetoric, which is the theme that uh, Deidre McCloskey has usefully brought to our attention, but much more on the institutional changes that can be traced back to the Middle Ages. You mentioned Montesquieu, but what other intellectuals influenced Smith the most? And also, how original is Adam Smith being so influenced by these people? Well, it, it, those are two great questions. They're both uh, very large questions and uh, I'll try and uh, avoid the academic's temptation to act as if he's uh, being paid by the word here <laughs> and uh, be as brief as, as possible. But Montesquieu is certainly uh, key. If I had to mention one person who was more influential than anyone else on, uh, on Smith, it would be David Hume. I think that what Smith uh, got from Hume is a, a large variety of different things. He he got a, a moral philosophy agenda, a moral psychology agenda that was very similar to that of Hume. But from the standpoint of political economy, which is what we're talking about today, what he got from Hume, uh, and it's critically important, is the view that history is the laboratory of the science of political economy, not 
what he disparagingly called political arithmetic. We might today call it, I don't know, uh, econometrics or or something like that. or uh, advanced statistics, he said he had he he had uh, a great deal of skepticism about that kind of approach. That was an approach that one was more likely to find a deductive, a hypothetical, a hypothetical deductive approach that uh, uh, that he uh, that you uh, would find uh, in the physiocrats in Kene, uh, in the um, tableau économique. Of the physiocrats, instead he thought that uh, history was the uh, the essential source of information and data for studying political economy, and 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 and, and the argument for that is that history enables you to look at humanity whole, to look at. Uh, humanity as political creatures, social creatures, uh, immoral creatures, and economic creatures. And it also enables you to track change over time in a way that a more statistically or a mathematically oriented uh, approach can do. He was a very close reader of, of Hume's History of England. He, draw multi- he drew multiple uh, examples uh, for his own work from Hume's uh, History of England. And, of course, he was a very close reader of Hume's political essays as well. And let me just say, since we're here talking about the relationship between the French and the English, there's a sense in which Hume's essays, his especially his political economy essays, which he brought out... Uh, in the, with the title Political Essays in 1752, was even more influential in the continent of Europe than it was in his own country. It was immediately translated into French, and through the French translation, it had a huge impact on the adoption of political economy itself in places where political economy was very much in its infancy, places like Spain uh, and uh, and France, uh, so so I would say if I had to cast a vote for one particular um, author who was a, a big big influence on Adam Smith, I would certainly cast that vote uh, for Hume. Now the second question that you uh, asked is equally interesting, and that is how original was Adam Smith. He has sometimes been accused of not uh, citing his sources as assiduously as someone like Montesquieu, for instance, did. Montesquieu was meticulous in his citation practice. Uh, I think that's partially unfair. I think that Smith uh, acknowledged a large number of uh, authors, uh, uh, famous and obscure, uh, as uh, sources of this, that, or the other um, idea of his. Uh, but I think uh, even though um, most, if, if not all, of the specific ideas that you find in Adam Smith can be located elsewhere uh, in other authors, 
I nonetheless think that the more I read Smith and the more I teach the wealth of nations in particular, that Smith was a remarkable genius. Uh, there's a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of creative packaging of different ideas uh, into a, uh, a remarkably coherent whole. And I'll just give you one example of this, uh, 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 Juliet, that I think will sort of illustrate my point here. In book five, uh, there's a, a, a sequence of 20 pages or so where Smith talks about religion. What is the best policy for governments to pursue with respect to religion? It was a huge question. In fact, it weighed heavily upon every single European intellectual practically from 1517 when Martin Luther first uh, attacked the 95 theses on the door of the Church of Wittenberg right up to Smith's own time. And I think if you read that discussion carefully, you see Smith's genius and his originality. The entire modern school of what's called um, the uh, economics of religion, which is about 30 or 40 years old now, and which has done very interesting and very creative work, uh, is simply an outgrowth of what Smith does in Book 5 of The Wealth of Nations. Basically, what he does is he takes issue with David Hume. Hume's basic argument had been that the best way of neutralizing the negative effects of religion for society is for governments to, as he put it, bribe the indolence, bribe the indolence of the preachers. In other words, establish a church and make the, the top clergy of that church sort of um, members of the governing elite of the country, sort of like what the Church of England, in fact, ended up uh, being and, and certainly perceived as being in the 18th century. Adam Smith thought that was all wrong. And what he instead offered is what you and I might think of as a market-based analysis of religion as a field of competition, in fact. So that the if you want peace in the society, Smith thought, you absolutely want to do the opposite of what Hume said. You do not want to co-opt the clergy and make them part of the ruling class, because there's always going to be someone appealing to um, common folks, ordinary people who are outside of the established order. And so the best option is to create a field of competition, not unlike the field of competition that you see uh, in the economy, where there are no special privileges. You mentioned the guilds that uh, Turgot tried to abolish. There are no monopolies. There is no preferential treatment by the state for any religion or any church simply let each of the different uh, faith communities compete with each other for adherence. And A, uh, you can make out a case that that, in fact, uh, was more or less uh, adopted as policy in the, in, in, in the United States once the Constitution uh, was adopted in 1789. And B, 
that this has be, become more or less the common sense of humankind uh, since uh, Smith uh, since Smith wrote. And uh, and so there are other examples like this, but uh, that uh, I, I would say that Smith certainly was working within a framework of received and inherited problems and questions. But I think his method of answering those questions uh, was filled with originality and genius. That's a significant difference between him and David Hume. I did not know that. That's so fascinating. Um, so before we go to our closing question, unfortunately, it is nearing that time. Um, since there were so many intellectuals at that time that were coming up with all these ideas and all these thoughts, and there were so there was such a big movement. What makes Smith stand out? Why do we talk so much more about Smith nowadays than the other intellectuals of that time? Well, it's a really interesting uh, uh, question. I think Smith himself might uh, be surprised uh, that um, that that's that that's the case, as you've described. I think he looked up to Hume very much uh, indeed. And I don't think he set an enormous amount of store on the wealth of nations after it came out in 1776. He retreated to a position in the customs uh, office uh, as a commissioner of the Scottish customs. And that's how he spent most of the rest of his uh, his life. I don't think he saw himself as uh, a particular uh, intellectual celebrity. I think he'd be surprised and I suppose delighted. Uh, that um, that so much has um, has been made of his work. Uh, lots of possible ways of answering your question. I think the um, the best way is probably to uh, to say this. Uh, first of all, his theory of moral sentiments, which we have not discussed uh, in this uh, this podcast today. Um, is a work of moral psychology and social psychology, among other things, that resonates remarkably with recent developments in the neurosciences and uh, behavioral economics and other fields that study human individual behavior. Smith just had an extraordinary insight into what makes ordinary people tick. And then secondly, of course, uh, his model of a free trade-based economy became a template for the entire wave of liberalization uh, in the 19th century. Frank Trentman has a, a, a book entitled Free Trade Nation, and it's all about how the British became a whole country that uh, was sort of attached to the idea, even the political idea of free trade. Activists and uh, uh, activist organizations were were developed around the theme of promoting free trade. It's a remarkable thing. And of course, it was remarkably different from the age of mercantilism or the mercantile system, as Smith called it, that he was railing against in the, in the wealth of nations. Free trade an individual laissez-faire economics has in fact become and is likely to remain, I venture to say, uh, one of the major options in the modern world. Now that it is 
now that it's been learned, there's a sense in which it will never be unlearned. Uh, and so I think that no matter what happens in the world, no matter who comes to power, where, I, I venture to uh, suggest that, uh, that Adam Smith will continue to uh, in, inspire people uh, who uh, resonate to this option. He created, I guess is what I'm saying, he created a permanent option for humankind on how to organize a, uh, a civilized uh, society. That is a great way to explain it. I never thought about it like that. Thank you so much. Before we close, what is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Oh boy, what an embarrassment of riches. (laughs) I've been wrong so many times about so many different things. Wow. I mean, you know, I, I, I guess one that I would pick, and there are definitely more than one, but one that I would pick, and I was kind of alluding to it just a moment ago, is secularization theory. When I, when I was your age, uh, when I was a college student, I simply took it for granted that secularization theory was accurate. That is to say that the more science and technology and reason and markets and prosperity and good government, the more those things spread, as they were destined to spread, uh, the less need people would feel for religion. And religion would simply uh, wither away and die. I mean, I I didn't even uh, question that belief uh, when I was first starting out as a as a, a university student, and uh, over the years, uh, reality sort of uh, hit me uh, uh, left and right around the around the ears, and uh, and then finally, just a, a few years ago, uh, my uh, my supervisors here had me teach a course in the sociology department called Religion and Political Economy, where I had a chance to actually research this very question. What is uh, secularization and what has, uh, uh, where does it stand today? And it kind of crystallized some of the doubts that I had been uh, arriving at on my own uh, for quite a number of years. And it now looks as if religion is simply one of those things that meets human needs in ways that we're still really uh, just beginning to to understand, but that it's highly, uh, highly, highly unlikely to, uh, to, uh, to go away anytime soon. There's this, there's this epigram uh, attributed to GK Chesterton, when men stop believing in God, it's not that they believe in nothing, it's that they'll believe in anything. And I think that we uh, have uh, have seen uh, that kind of phenomenon uh, over and over again. But even just the phenomenon of religion itself, uh, religion has changed its nature, it's cha- changed its form, its shape, its character uh, in, from one place to the next and so forth. But it certainly has not gone away. And by the way, I think that Adam Smith 
is one of the leading figures uh, of of leading intellectual figures of the modern world, one of the few who would not necessarily be surprised at this development. I do not read him as a secularization theorist in the sense that I think you could say uh, David Hume was a secularization theorist. I think you know Smith was looking f- to steer and shape religion into a more harm, a more harmless, socially harmless sort of way. Uh, but I don't know that he really believed that religion was ever going to disappear. I did, however, and shame on me because it's uh, absolutely clear that I was wrong. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you.